Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode four of Offshoot. Today, Ian Formigli, Chief Investment Officer of CrowdStreet, joins the conversation from a 2013 startup in the wake of the Jobs Act to today, where CrowdStreet has become one of the preeminent crowdfunding platforms in the nation. Ian shares a ton of information, knowledge, and expertise with me and you. The platform's done billions of dollars of transactions, and uh, he shares that he believes both multifamily and industrial remain strong that monetary policy is going to have huge implications for both cap rates and interest rates down the road. Said another way, the wave of capital continues. He talks about risk management, risk mitigation, betting on markets long-term and underwriting to normalcy after this pandemic, Uh, looking at basis and the cost to clear the chasm to assess risk of any particular investment. We talk about build to rent, talk about starting companies and making sure that your market has sufficient and growing demand, and also about team building and filling in your own blind spots. Uh, A few comments also in there about tenacity and not being afraid to get up and carry on after a defeat. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And uh, here's Ian. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the conversation with me and my guest today, Ian Formigli. Ian is the Chief Investment Officer of CrowdStreet, one of, if not the nation's premier crowdfunding sites. Ian and founder Darren Powderly are almost certain to be heralded as overnight successes for the incredible wins they've had with CrowdStreet. But thankfully, I've known Ian since before CrowdStreet and the 2012 Jobs Acts, which really enabled the whole crowdfunding phenomena. Safe to say these guys have been tireless in their pursuit of success, and it's been a good long haul to get here. That said, they continue to put up impressive numbers in raising JV equity, pref equity, and debt from their large pool of individual investors. As I understand it, they've raised over $1.3 billion, 464 deals, well over 50,000 investors in the community, and importantly, They work with sponsors who have an average of seven years in the business and have done at least $200 million in in transactions. Ian's one of the smart ones. He's thorough, meticulous, and able to both zoom in and zoom out to understand opportunities. I always enjoy bringing deals to CrowdStreet and learning from their vantage point. So it's my pleasure to welcome Ian to the podcast. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't know if I can live up to that intro, but I will do my best. Hey, we'll we'll be fine, I'm sure. Uh, So, hey, to start, could you just tell, uh, you know, sort of the audience about yourself and CrowdStreet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Happy to. Uh, So, as you mentioned, I am the Chief Investment Officer at CrowdStreet. We are an online commercial real estate investment platform, 
as you mentioned, Kevin, we were born out of the Jobs Act of 2012. So in essence, Title II of the Jobs Act went live in September of 2013. And what that changed was syndication at the national level. And what I mean by that is prior to that, um, there's a particular part of, of the 506C Reg D Act that was syndication had always been done this way, all the way dating back to um, you know the Securities Act of 1933, in that what we would refer to as country club deals, so groups of individuals coming together to capitalize commercial real estate projects, you could do that offline, you could do that with people you knew, and it was small and it was not really scalable. And so what that translated to was essentially kind of a, a cap or a lid almost on the, the amount of capital you could amass in any one given transaction. And so in 2013, when Title II went live, you were able for the first time to publicize a private Reg D offering by changing the, the registration under 506, which is now 506C. And really where the, the aha moment for the company and what gave rise to the launch of our marketplace in April of 2014 is that for the first time since, really since 1933, you could publicize a Reg D offering, which means that you could change the order of operation in terms of you, the current domain being know, know the investor, second, talk about a deal. You could talk about a deal and then you could get to know the investor. So when you change that order, you enable the, the mass distribution of an offering through any, mean, any means of communication, including a website. So if you could publicize it, put on a website, and if you could attach you know, a, a robust platform and transaction center to it, you could have what is now you know, commercial real estate crowdfunding. So that's what got us going. And in 2014, we did a few deals, raised $5 million over the course of that first year and, and just started to, to gain our footing. Fortunately for our, our company, we found our way. And uh, by consistently working with good companies, uh, getting access to good deal flow, meeting great investors around the country, you know, we've now scaled to the point where we raised about $515 million last year, came into 2020 you know, with eyes set on a billion, in 2020, COVID hit, and we're not exactly going to hit a billion this year, but I do think that we'll exceed a billion in funding next year. And so I think after six years, you know, the the promise of getting great deal flow all around the country to individual investors out there is is actually really here. The quality of the sponsors and the deals on the marketplace these days, I think we're we're pretty pleased to see. So it's been an interesting journey, and you know, we've finally reached a point of scale where we are relevant to the commercial real estate industry. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, your role, like in the day to day, what is it that you're tasked with? Yeah, so I, I serve as the key decision maker on all the deals that come to the marketplace. So I we ha we have a deal team at CrowdStreet. It's about twelve people that that I work with every day that are evaluating deals that are coming into the the pipeline. Uh, we have about another, I think, eighteen people that are on our capital markets team. And those are the people that are out there actively seeking deal flow for the marketplace. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's constantly evaluating the deal flow and the companies that are approaching us or when we're approaching them, to be totally honest too, and looking for that next, you know, best opportunity to get onto the marketplace. And one thing that we've been, you know, a little bit different in terms of 2020, in terms of the previous years is I would say that it was fair to say that over the course of, call it 2014 to 2018 or so, 
we were in that exploratory kind of building up phase of CrowdStreet as a company to kind of find out really what we were good at, where we fit into the scheme of capital markets and what was going to resonate with us. And so we finally landed kind of coming into 2019 on a, on a more direct and prescriptive investment thesis. And we were building upon that in 2019. And in 2020, it really took off in terms of once we hit COVID, our company and our deal team had to sit down and acknowledge that the commercial real estate industry leading up until March 11th of this year, it ended. There was a downturn that was going to ensue of some form. And then there was going to be the emergence of an, an, of an upcoming cycle. And so really part of the work of 2020 was to think through how we were going to navigate the pandemic what would be the best opportunities out there around the country and really what we what would we gain strong conviction in terms of bringing to the marketplace in terms of sponsors and deal flow in the months and even now the years ahead so that's been a big thing for us this year and we're we're pleased to see how we've you know been able to manage through the pandemic get access to amazing deal flow and it did culminate this summer in that we published our investment thesis on our website and so now investors can log in and just see exactly how we're seeing the world and, and how we're attacking commercial real estate deal, at, you know, as we go forward. Well, uh, I have a little bit of trepidation to ask this because I'm certain that it's uh, got a lot of attributes, a lot of texture, a lot of nuance. But where do you see the strategy? Where do you see opportunity in a in a COVID or post-COVID world, I mean, I know, like I said, it's going to vary by asset class, but where are you guys focused? Yeah. So yeah, Kevin, as you can imagine, it is really, really uh, nuanced. It varies by asset class. It varies by location. If we were going to try to roll it all up really quickly, asset classes that we think have the most legs going forward are going to be predominantly multifamily and industrial real estate. Those are the ones that we see industrial kind of just being the asset class is just like genuinely strong. The spike in e-commerce sales in the United States to over 20% of all sales, you know, this year essentially means that we, while we entered 2020 with industrial in a relative state of equilibrium, it's now undersupplied. I will agree with anyone who says, hey, there's going to be some regression to the mean on the on that spike as we exit the pandemic. Fair. But it does mean that we are undersupplied and we're going to see this you know, continued absorption of, of e-commerce sales as total sales. And so I, I, anytime we can find ground up industrial deals, either last mile distribution or major distribution in hub markets, we like those types of deals. We like multifamily in growing secondary markets where we like them before. You can see sometimes slight discounts on those types of deals when we would probably have expected slight premiums. So anytime we can get access to a deal in a Florida market or a Texas market where there's strong growth, we like that. The non-taxation aspect of those states is obviously appealing to investors as well. And then I think after you you go down from there, you're going to start to see you know, the introduction of more opportunistic type of deal flow. We've done a hotel deal on the platform during the pandemic. If we do those, those are going to be pretty heavily discounted for all the obvious reasons. Retail, same thing, very anecdotal, but discounted and more distressed or opportunistic. And then, you know, from there, other niche asset classes that we've had some success with, you know, needs-based medical office, senior, uh, senior housing is more of an opportunistic standpoint. And then other things like uh, self-storage we've done, we will continue to do that from a ground up perspective predominantly. And even manufactured housing, uh, great asset class in manufactured housing, 
as you can imagine, it's, it's, it's niche. There's just not a lot of it out there. It's hard for the world to create more of it, you know, particularly in the United States. So we're just not see a lot of that. Um, but that's kind of how we see it. So, you know, again, there, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting opportunities as we get into 21. Uh, you know, even the emergence of other types of distressed deal flow. We've got we've done a, a discounted banknote deal on our platform. That was the first time we've ever done that, which was this summer. So we might see more of that in the months ahead. Um, but industrial and multifamily, I think, are going to lead the way. You know, next year. Okay. Yeah, and to say you've just put. Uh you know, 10 paths for us to go down is a bit of an understatement, but let's pick um, multifamily. It's it's a space that we are also very active in. I'm curious what you guys see coming. Um, you know, if you're talking HUD, which is always the low price leader, uh, long-term fixed rate debt, its base rate now is down around 2.1%. Just like an FHA loan, you add mortgage insurance premium to that. Uh, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac at the low, low leverage level, say 55% LTV. I think you can see that money as low as 2.6, maybe 2.7%. Yeah. Um, and you know, the agencies haven't, they're overwhelmed because there's a burst in refinance activity, but they haven't pulled back. Uh, that's not true of all the banks and credit unions and the like, but where do you see multi going in that backdrop? And, you know, we can also sprinkle in things like monetary supply and, and we don't probably need to go there right now but uh it's it's obviously part of this this conversation but where, what's your crystal ball i mean uh i have gotten a lot of things wrong on covid and the economy and uh, multi is is been pretty fascinating it has been fascinating and i think that you nailed that the fact that the key underlying thing right now that is producing just strong floor of demand under multifamily is the cheap debt. Uh, you know, the way that I think that when I talk to a lot of operators out there, like the anecdotal comment is in some ways right now, you're, you're almost paying a little bit more to get a little bit less, you know, at the, at the national level. And so we're taking, we take that from the standpoint of saying, Hey, knowing that if you can see that fixed rate, 10 year Fannie money price at, you know, sub 3% today, that was over 4% this time last year. And then you, you take that and you attach it to a deal that, that's in a market that you liked before, like long-term demographics, right? I mean, we've been bullish on all the typical growing secondary markets, right? The Charlottes, the Nashvilles, the Austins, you know, even the Denvers of, of the country. If we can take deal flow, be in a, get into a submarket that we fundamentally like, we like it midterm, long-term, see that deal priced with a small discount, whatever discount could be had, right? And maybe that discount is procured through certainty of execution by the operator. Then, you know, you now take that deal, you pair it with cheap debt, the economics just got better. And, you know, you you feel really good about that deal, you know, three, four, five years down the road. You know, multifamily, I think, is still sitting in a good spot overall. Um, you know, I do think that you have to pay attention to where supply is, where it's going to come, which is why we like the the markets that have job growth and population growth that have outpaced national averages for for the last few years. I think one thing that you can look at during the pandemic is that to some degree, it has simply accelerated some of the trends that we already saw in motion. I mean, we were a fan of growing you know markets within Florida last year. And if anything, we're just seeing further growth this year, you know, kind of short term, I think, growth, you know, spikes 
you know, we've, we've seen the, the, the migration out of New York down to Florida. Okay. I, I characterize that as a short-term phenomenon, but it is dumping another layer of demand into those Florida markets right now. So then when we think strategy wise, one of the strategies that we have jumped in on is ground up this year. Uh, from the perspective of we're watching the top of the funnel, you know, from an entitlement perspective, you know, deals that are in planning around the country, things are at the top of the funnel are starting to kind of winnow down in terms of their, their supply. We have been really focused on strong operators and developers in key markets that we like that had projects that were nearing the bottom of the funnel. Then we get into COVID. Then you've seen the scenarios where maybe they had different JV capital partners lined up, others that were they were about to line up throughout the summer. And then in the in the current environment, you know, you have a lot of institutional capital that's decided to sit on the sidelines for a little bit. That's given us a window of opportunity to jump in and say, hey, we we like that deal. We like the opportunity to deliver, you know, a great project at a good basis at the end of 21 or coming into 22. We think that deal is going to have relatively muted supply behind it for another 12 months, which will essentially give you the nicest, newest thing on the block and, and give you that clear kind of, you know, be the shiny thing without a lot of other shiny things around you to lease up and stabilize. And, and ultimately, I think that now we're talking 22, it's the next phase. We think we'll be getting into the, the beginning of the growth phase of the cycle. You know, I think you just like that spot. So that's been a strategy that we have actively pursued. I do think that the window of that opportunity will start to close some as we get towards 21, just because, well, that top of the funnel will get down to the bottom of the funnel in terms of the entitlement perspective. So we expect um, that deal flow to kind of, you know, peter out a little bit. And then we'll have to probably move on to other things, but we'll, we'll take it while we can get it. Um, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, literally, uh, you're echoing the same conversation we've been having internally. And there, there's another reason that I like what you're saying, which is, you know, pick pick whatever you think your stabilized yield on cost is for whatever secondary market it is that you might be pursuing. Maybe it's five and a half. Maybe the developer tell, tells you it's a six. Uh, if he's able to build that product today with a, with a purported exit, let's say it's a five and a half yield on cost, and he thinks he can exit at four and a quarter, maybe maybe he'd even argue four, 125 basis point spread. My contention, given that the Fed's telegraphing they're not moving rates till 2024, and you've got you know what we just said, sub 3% long-term fixed rate debt, that deal is going to trade at a cap rate that's lower than the cap rates we had going into to 2020. I agree. There, there's no doubt. You, so you, you mentioned monetary policy. I think you got to start talking about it a little bit here because you, you take the the combination of low interest rates that are here to stay for, you know, call it the next three to five years. We don't know, but it's going to be a while. And then you dump on top of that a, a 25% increase in the money supply this year and you 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 cannot simply put those two together without having some sort of upward pressure on hard asset pricing in the years to come. So you know, again, I think when we think about it from a high quality perspective, is that you typically in that kind of a scenario, the assets that are going to go at these you know potentially at large premiums, they're going to be the best assets in the best locations. So 
you know, we're, we're looking at it through that lens and saying, look, if we can see a highly reputable, you know, enterprise level developer who ha- who's had a great site tied up for a while, in the case of w- when we're looking at these deals right now, these are deals that are two years in the making. So they've already kind of placed their bet from a strategic location perspective. Now they're bringing us a deal and saying, this is finally ready to hit, you know, break ground later this year. And when we look at the combination of great location, great developer, and then you think about what that market looks like in 23, that to me sets you up for a lot of success. Yeah, I agree. And I think as information has become uh, more abundant and faster, uh, transmitting more quickly, uh, the markets move more quickly. And you know, we can see this in the stock market. And I was talking to a client yesterday about... <clears throat> potentially getting a, a perm loan on a 280 unit project that they're building out in Denver. And they've got uh, a comp of a, a project very similar to theirs that's being sold 50% leased on pro forma NOI at a 4.22 cap rate today on a 50% occupancy. Uh, for their pro forma, they're going from a 305, 305,000 uh, exit per door to 350,000 based on that. So we're, I think we're already seeing, you know, the big institutional yield driven capital recognizing that there's a moment where they can grab this and actually be ahead of the curve and look back and be happy <laughs> that they got it at a 422 because it, it may be shockingly inside of that in 18 to 24 months. Well, yeah, I think you've got potentially the next major data point on that thesis in terms of, I don't know if you watched the Willie Walker you know, webcast from this past week, uh, had you know the two, the, the brothers from The Motley Fool on, you know, at the, at the onset of that webcast, you know, Willie Walker points out they're getting ready to take, you know, an institutional multifamily asset class, you know, asset deal to market. And they're expecting not only a sub four cap rate on that deal, the, the the expectation is they might actually hit a three and a half cap. And so if people are paying a three and a half cap today on class A multifamily, I haven't seen the location of the deal yet. My guess is it's going to be somewhere like in the Gulch. You The only way you pay a three and a half cap on multifamily right now is Nashville is if you fundamentally just are, you're going to take a bet for seven, five to seven years in the future and you're all in on just future asset appreciation, right? Because there's very little little yield coming out of that for the short term. Yep. Agreed. Well, look, you talk about um, a little bit kind of risk spectrum. And and I know that uh, the pedigree of CrowdStreet is a lot of value add and opportunistic deals. You just articulated that you guys are starting to look uh, with with some focus at multifamily development, more like a broad arching um, topic. And I know you're very capable uh, in this regard, but how do you think about risk? How do you think about returns, risk-adjusted returns, downside variance, um, when you look at these these markets or a specific opportunity? I mean, I know that's that's your job. I've had these conversations with you, but yeah. yeah. The, the notion of, of risk and how to look at it and evaluate it has been fascinating this year, and it has been hugely dynamic in the sense of, I mean, if we, if we back it up to March, we we looked at deals in March and April with, I mean, just think about where we were at, at that period in the early phase of the pandemic. We had zero idea what the next two years would look like. 
and the so that what it what it really forced us to do is think about deal flow during that period of time. I would say very similarly to how we looked at deal flow or I looked at deal flow in 20 in 2009 uh, when I was still on the private equity side of the shop you know on the buy side. And you know and that and I what I mean by that is it was a period of time where you just had to stare into the abyss, look at an asset, look at the price of that asset and and think about the potential of future normalcy returning to the market sometime in the next few years, but you have no idea when. And first, first thing to answer was, can I get to 22 with my, with my, the way my capital stack is formed today, knowing that it could look ugly for the next, you know, 12, 18, even up to 24 months. And then, you know, and then two, if I could, if I could do that, and then I could have the world start to look a little bit more normal by 23 or 24. And if this asset could then bounce back, what would that look like? And if that would turn into a good return, it's almost literally that kind of just pure gut call to say, that's the type of risk that you're going to take in April of 2020. Uh, you know, we saw a, a handful of deals come through that had that texture. And so we did jump in and do them. I think I feel increasingly really good about those deals that we did do because maybe they will will potentially show up to be as some of the best opportunities that we'll see through this whole period. Um, but that was like the early phase. I think it's it, what's been also interesting is that so we're already seeing how dynamic the the aspect of risk has proven throughout 2020, because now what we can point to is saying, okay, well now that we have seen this massive influx in terms of liquidity and in, in you know bumping up the money supply, seeing how that's already started to play out in equity markets, and I will I'll totally understand you know people will point out equity markets and say, well yeah look the, I get it the S and P is back up, but it's also dominated by the top fifty and kind of the bottom four fifty are trailing. Fair enough, um, but there's no doubt that their money is coming back into the market. And if you and, and now if we know that look we we pair you know cheap money. And a monetary policy that's going to be lax for the going forward period. And you think about the fact that you only can put your money really in four places today. It's either in equities, okay, we're seeing money come back there, or or debt bonds. Well, bonds are going to have no yield for for however long we don't know, but for a while. And after that, you're left with you know either cash, but there's debasing of the dollar, so cash doesn't look that great. And then alternatives. And so, and hard assets within alternatives. So CRE being the number one space within alternatives, you know, we kind of feel that fundamentally that's going to be now be a good place going forward. So that's already changing our the, the way that we evaluate risk and reward in the out years. Now, you definitely have to get into the next level of a, asset class and location because it is not a, you know, one size fits all strategy because you could go to the most risky point part of the spectrum and say hospitality, yeah, hospitality is still in a massive state of distress and it's not going to get out of distress probably until 22. However, meanwhile, like industrial, there was no distress. There was there was zero distress. And so that's changed. So what really what that looks like now is that we have to take the, the aspect of risk on a case-by-case basis. If it is hotel, yes, we're, we're, we're acknowledging that that asset ha- has massive risk attached to it. And how do we navigate the chasm between 2020 and 2022, you start sliding down that scale and then looking at each different deal by location, you get all the way over to industrial, which is kind of saying, look, it's it's more of like a, hey, we're, we're about ready to embark on the next ups part of the cycle. 
and then you could even throw something in the middle and saying office, like office. We we're, we don't even know exactly where it's going yet. The emergence of the distress in that space is probably really coming next year as we get towards more maturities in the CMBS markets and we kind of see more of the the current philosophy of kicking the can on six month renewals start to you know slow down and get post pandemic. And then I think the the office market's going to start actually changing. So it's a long way of saying that when you think about risk and reward, you really got to get you know, strategic on what are you doing and where are you doing it and what what part of the cycle do you think it sits in because it's all over the board. I mean, I, th- I think the final point here is that talking to people, my mentors and so forth in the space, you know, the level of asset dispersion that currently exists in this market, unprecedented. I mean, unprecedented yeah. in, in our lifetime. So yeah. it, it just, so it, so there's risk there, but it's also going to create opportunity because as we know, commercial real estate is just hugely inefficient. So just an interesting time. I agree. Uh, I was actually speaking to somebody yesterday and um, we were getting into kind of the the commercial space and the fact that at some level, it's actually not terribly complicated, right? I mean, you're buying an asset, you're putting leverage on it, you're running it. But the truth is every story, every asset, there's a lot of skill, a lot of expertise, a lot of experience that's required to not only make the right acquisition, have the right lens to what you're saying on basis and duration to recovery, but then also to get in there, put the right vendors, the right consultants, the right experts on the ground to actually execute a business plan. So uh, it's uh, this is going to be absolutely fascinating. It has been thus far and I've got a bunch of it wrong and I'll probably continue to do that. Um, <laughs> we, we will all get a bunch of things wrong, but hopefully we get more of it right than we get wrong. And that's where the opportunity lies. Yeah, I agree. So look, you mentioned one other thing that I think is um, really fascinating, which is, you know, I think it was kind of a, a quiet um, entrance when real estate was deemed an asset class. And, and since then, We've seen large-scale institutional investors, whether they're life companies or pension funds or endowments, um, continue to increase their allocations to commercial real estate. And simultaneously, you're seeing the winners uh, of the, the, the fund management business get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's less diversity in the investment community or, or call it the fund allocation community, meaning the fund managers. Uh, you know, I think Blackstone's current mortgage rate is like $167 billion. Uh, what do you see in that space? What do you see that injecting into commercial real estate? And uh, how does CrowdStreet you know, sort of fit into that fabric. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're kind of teeing up part of the reason why, you know, w- we got into this space and wanted to build this company is because we, you know, coming out of the downturn. I mean, so you go back to the the co-founders of the company. So Darren Powderly, and then when he found Torstein and they they co-founded CrowdStreet, you know, you've got Darren seeing you know, and Darren was a commercial real estate broker, so he saw what was happening during that during the great financial crisis in terms of this massive aggregation of capital amongst few players, and what that was translating to, and how that was playing out. And you know, you could just see that it was well. There's there's a, there is a high concentration, and and maybe that level of concentration is getting to unhealthy levels. And and now when you have this opportunity to have a you know a small upstart space come in and chip away and and you know get into a piece of the market share you know that was 
that was the fundamental reason behind you know building this platform is that we wanted to get individuals access to this asset class. I, I mean, we drank the Kool-Aid on terms of kind of modern portfolio theory and why commercial real estate makes sense for an individual to be in its, you know, in, in their own portfolio. And you only you don't need to look farther than the likes of the endowment model and see how Yale and Princeton and Harvard have managed their money really well over the years. And having hard assets in their portfolio was a key component of it. And it will ebb and flow just like anything else, right? You see those groups, you know, increase their allocation and decrease their allocation as they see fit and where they feel like they sit in the cycle. But having hard assets, commercial real estate assets in their portfolio has always been a poor, a core part of their investment thesis. So that was our that was the whole thing. So I think when we when we look at that going forward and saying, yes, institutional real estate will still have a heavy, heavy component of capital coming from the likes of the Blackstones and so forth. That's never going to change. But we think that there is this, you know, kind of small little wedge that we think can grow going forward that can create an allocation, you know, and an entree for the likes of the crowd streets and other parts of the online commercial real estate space to get in there and and have a seat at the capital markets table. And so, you know, we we, we do think that if we go from 500 and change a million raised this year, maybe we hit 550 or 600 million in 2020 going to into the billions in the years ahead that, you know, that we will carve off a, a plank of, of equity capital markets and, and, and start to change that equation a little bit. And hopefully the, the billion goes to four or 5 billion. And I mean, now, now it's, it's real and it's at the national level real. And so that that's our vision and hope. Um, but we will, you know, it remains to be seen how that plays out. Well, and I think there's another overlay there. Um, a parallel condition in in this sort of phenomena of larger and fewer fund managers. Um, they only have so much human capital. They only have so much capacity in terms of annual deal processing. And there's a significant opportunity cost for them to take on any deal. And, and then you look at the built environment. My understanding is somewhere around 50% of the commercial real estate world is 50,000 square feet and less. Well, $162 billion debt fund isn't going to be playing with many, if any, 50,000 square foot assets. It can't do it. And, you know, I think that's where there's a huge hole. There's a huge hole and there's a huge opportunity. And I think you guys, I mean, I know you've done some very, very large projects with some very high quality sponsors, but I think you've also had some smaller allocations. I, I, well, why don't you tell me? I mean, have you had smaller allocations to the, the more niche plays and the, the you know great basis plays, great rehab stories, but they're just not big deals? Yeah. Uh, so the answer is yes. Uh, if we look across every deal that's ever come to our marketplace and then you say, well, what is the average total cap of that deal? It's in the 40 something million dollar range. And, you know, predominantly speaking, we are most active. I mean, we in, in those secondary markets, we, we picked that up as a thesis coming into 2018. And we really leaned into the markets that were the Charlottes and the Nashvilles. And we were shying away from, at that time, the San Francisco's and the New York's. But I think probably for starters, you know, a couple of reasons. One is that real estate was really expensive in those markets. Valuations were a little bit hard for us to wrap our head around. You know, but then also, practically speaking, we we also had to have relevancy, and 
when you think about the when you have a, a single asset in New York City that can trade for a billion dollars, and our platform at that time can now start to raise five or maybe ten million dollars on an individual asset, it's just not really relevant. So you know, it's not really moving the needle. Now you you take that that same capital size and you apply that to a $40 million asset and you lever that up at about 65 loan to cost. Okay. Well, now we, now, now we're in the teens for, in terms of the total amount of equity, millions of dollars of equity that need to go into that deal. And if we can produce seven, eight, $10 million, well, that's meaningful. It's not going to be the 90% of equity of that deal, but it's going to be enough that now if that operator or developer comes to us with some capital in tow, be it its own co-investment and then maybe its own friends and family or family office or small institution that's alongside of it, like we're meaningful and we can help get that deal done. So that's where we fit that we fit our, you know, that we were finding our stride. And we love the fact that we were finding our stride in those markets because we had conviction around them anyways. And then to say, all right, well, if this is the size deal that we can do, and these are the markets that we can do it in, and those types of assets are easier to find in those markets because they aren't as expensive as a New York or a San Francisco, then it just it all started to fit. And then the last point here, I think, is when you think about it from an asset class perspective, then some of those niche asset classes that we really liked, self-storage and, and manufactured housing, for example, and maybe some smaller medical office buildings, you know, to your point, Kevin, those are smaller deals. I mean, medical office buildings, you can look around the country. They're not usually big on average. They're 30 to 45,000 square feet, right? They tend to be three floors, have a little elevator in the middle. They're, you know, those are, those are what we would say is more bite-sized assets that you can get in and put some capital in. And they're, they're being overlooked by the monster capital out there because they're just right. too small. Um, same thing, manufactured housing, just not going to, it's hard to find a $10 million manufactured housing deal. They just don't really exist. So again, these niche asset classes, you can find a lower level of competition. So if you're able to find a great operator who actually does focus in that space and then empower them with, you know, five to $10 million per deal, I mean, now you can go get some really great deals and I think earn, you know, outsized returns relative to the risk that you're taking. Yep. So then since it seems like I'm teeing you up, that's certainly not my intention. Uh, look, the idea of crowdfunding, as it's always been in my mind from inception, was, you know, Tammy Teacher is putting money in her local pension fund. That pension fund is hiring the consultants that put the pension fund money into the the large opportunity funds that allocate through people like me to the local developer. And there's a ton of value add in that process and a lot of expertise brought to uh, the, the sort of conduit that allows that money to move. But it's hugely inefficient because everybody's getting paid all the way up and down so that Tammy teacher can finally get whatever she's supposed to recognize on her, uh, you know, endowment or, or her pension. Um, how do you guys play in that space in terms of trying to remove some of those middle layers oh. and, and getting a more efficient return to your investors? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that Kevin, because when I first joined CrowdStreet and coming out of a, a commercial real estate operator developer perspective, I felt that the value that a CrowdStreet type platform could offer to the world, right, was the ability to remove a link in that chain. 
where it didn't necessarily need to be. Like that was I, once I saw that, and I, I thought that that was plausible. Then I was really interested in you know putting my efforts toward trying to to build and scale this this platform. And so now, um, you know, I think we are making good on some of that promise of saying, hey, we're trying to get the returns one step closer to the actual individual, right? It, it's the because to your point, if it is the teachers of this world that are contributing money to a pension fund, which is getting allocated, right? Like the end user, the end beneficiary of that commercial project out there somewhere is the teachers, right? It's, 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 it's their pension. And what, and I, I agree with you that what I saw was a really inefficiently, you know, structured product from start to finish to get that money and too many different profit sharing schemes to get down to the to the teachers, and that was ultimately. I mean, the, the way you can look at it is, you start with a project level return, right? Real estate can re- earn returns at the asset level, and then the question is, is well, what are your returns? Well, it depends on are you are you the developer? Well, you get them all. Are you not the developer? Are you limited partner? Well, then you share with the developer. Are you are you a partner that is? Uh, an allocator, which is then amassing money to go give it to a return to somebody else, a profit sharing. Okay, well, that's what we call the double promote. Like, you know, the more that you water this down, I, I would look at the at the scenario of the pension, you know, contributor and saying, sometimes you wonder if the if the level of risk that they're ultimately taking is is commensurate with the reward that they're getting out of that deal, because there is a lot of Profits sucked out along the way, and so that was our whole, you know, mindset to say, look, if we can get the individual a step closer to the actual project level return, you know, we're doing, we're we're making the the world better for investors, better returns. We can make the world better for even the developer and operators because you know there can be a sharing of that, right? If there isn't the middle person extracting a pound of flesh, then the developer operator can make a little bit more and pass on more to the to the end user, right? The investor who's really going to change their life. It's going to help them retire or help put their kid through college, right? Th- these are the reasons that we that we wanted to pursue this this element of it. And you know, I'd still say that it, it's a relatively nascent industry, but you know, it's one that it's finally starting to scale. Yeah, well, look, the other side of that coin, and where I think uh, CrowdStreet has done some things right is. In truth, if if we go with this notion of Tammy Teacher, um, you know, she doesn't have a clue. Like, she doesn't know if your hotel acquisition at $115,000 a key for a select serve property in Nashville is a good buy. And and she could go on CrowdStreet and she could look at the deal. And you guys have great materials and she could kind of research that and look at all the pro formas. But she doesn't have the expertise to make uh, a, a... a highly discretionary, highly discerning uh, conclusion as to whether or not it's a good investment. And and if you go back to this whole notion of, you know, people buy IBM, why? Well, because it's IBM and and there's credibility in the decision without having to take the risk of, of being uh, wrong with that with that purchase. As as platforms like CrowdStreet develop track record and pedigree and results that show what goes on the platform isn't just there for you to pick through to decide what's good and what's bad. It's it's curated and it's already deemed by a, a qualified group of professionals to be 
sufficiently robust to merit investment. That's where I think you guys have got it right. You you aren't just opening it up like eBay and saying, hey, if you got something to sell, sell it on our platform. We'll take a little technology fee. You're actually like, well, look, I've been on the other side of this. In fact, the deal that you and I most recently spoke of, it was, eh, you know, I think your cost per unit's a little too high for a tertiary market. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I, again, yeah. I'm not trying to make this like a, an infomercial, but I, I love this space that you guys are in and, and I've given it a fair bit of thought through the years. Well, thanks. Um, I would say, so you, you, you make an excellent point. I think there's differences between what our platform is to the, to the, you know, the users on the platform. That's very different than anybody who shows up at, you know, the huge platforms such as Amazon or eBay or so forth is that, you know, that's those transactions can be down to like the $20, you know, on an average ticket, right? The, the average ticket on our platform is $50,000 roughly. And that's, that's an alarm. That's a large amount of money, no matter how you look at it. And so what that re- requires of us and what re- requires of both sides of the transaction is a lot of trust. There's just a, there's a, a level of required incoming trust from the investor on our platform that is just so different than like any sort of other form of e-commerce out there for the most part, right? These are, you know, probably the only one that equates to us is something like you look at Charles Schwab, right? Okay. There has to be a lot of trust from the person who's using the Schwab platform, right? To go use it. So, I mean, we, that, from that perspective, we live in the financial world. Uh, We're just a tech enabled, you know, segment of it. So we, we begin there because at the end of the day, a marketplace like CrowdStreet is just, it, it is a trust platform of which investors are trusting developers and operators and vice versa to come together on transactions. And then us being the gatekeeper of trust on both sides, it, it's how it functions. Um, so I think it's just, that's that's how we look at that space. And you know to your point of, I do totally agree that there are many people out there who one are not sophisticated enough of a commercial real estate investor to know whether $115,000 per key for a select service hotel in Nashville is a good deal or a bad deal, nor should they, they have to be that level of sophistication. You know, the next phase of the evolution of platforms like ours are the infusement of vehicles, uh, which we have now have in our platform in such a privately managed accounts, which are essentially investors opening accounts and giving discretion to CrowdStreet to make those decisions on their behalf, or just kind of blended vehicles, you know, whether they're blended across multiple different asset classes, whether they're strategic asset class, you know, vehicles that are going into specific asset classes. That's, that's probably, I mean, that's the, the logical next step. So we are deploying discretionary capital today. It's still relatively small percentages as a, as a percentage of the total velocity on the platform. But there's no doubt that as we scale, that th- as that trust builds and as our track record builds, that the, you know, the, the introduction of more vehicles and larger vehicles is just kind of a natural evolution of the space. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I won't go down those particular wormholes because we'll get we'll get wrapped around a whole another couple of chapters there. But a couple of times now you have mentioned um, manufactured housing and you haven't said build to rent. Um, but, you know, I already I already capitulated that I've gotten a few things wrong on covid during the Great Recession. Uh, 
you know, Colony American, Waypoint, uh, Blackstone's play, I can't remember what they called themselves, these large scale uh, players and this whole notion of like REO to rental or, or just SFR rental, um, you know, it really caught, um, it came into its own. And personally, I said, look, this is a moment in time. You've got assets on bank balance sheets at below replacement costs that can offer some yield to the buyer. And it's just brilliant to take it at pennies on the dollar. And who cares if you make, I mean, at the time, those cap rates in many markets were actually stronger than the comparable multifamily uh, assets. But, you know, it wasn't really like, hey, we're going to go make a bunch of yield. It was really a basis play. And it made sense because there was some cash flow. And yeah, it was super labor intensive. But I honestly thought, hey, SFR rental, this is a moment in time. This is not a new asset class. Um, Fast forward 2020, I now see slab on grade stick built structures being built for a fraction of the cost of of more structured even just three-story garden walk-up apartments uh, i see the rents much higher than they have been historically and i see yield on cost for those communities even if they're not purpose-built uh at a level that's attractive and and there's debt financing now that's come into that space that makes the overall you know sort of accretion of of the the bottom of the capital stack make the equity work. Um, what do you guys think of that space? I know you have some experience there. You have some expertise. I got it wrong. Um, but there's kind of a new, a new era of, of it coming forward. It, it would seem. Well, Kevin, we love that space. It, it is part of our investment thesis. And we started pursuing that as an asset class in 2019 but with what's happened with COVID and how we've seen this market evolve in 2020, I think it is now off to the races as a strategy. Uh, so a good example and just a little bit of an anecdotal story. But so in 2019, there's a group that we work with out of Dallas, very reputable developer, multifamily and single family, total cap. They've developed over $5 billion worth of product, you know, predominantly in Texas. And they brought us a, a deal. We did a deal with them in the BTR space. And so they helped us get up to speed on this, you know, emerging asset class. And so we looked at it, we studied and in the, you know, in the called the end of the summer of last year, you know, it was like, wow, this is super interesting. Like I, I can see how this can work, you know, in that if you take a, a plot of land, you know, and again, there's this, this strategy works really well in certain parts of the country. It's not going to work as well in other parts of the country because you you need a more relatively unconstrained market. You need so you need some flat ground and you need access to some space because it is it is more land intensive. So it's not a shocker to see that where this has really picked up and gained traction is in Phoenix and in Texas and you know particularly Dallas Metro and in Denver. So you know San Antonio as well, and and so forth. But you know a little bit more challenging in a place like Austin, for example, right? Like more rolling hills terrain, higher higher price land, and so forth. So it's a little harder to get it to pencil. But in these more kind of wide open markets, you 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 take the kind of the best of both of what's happening out there. I mean, if you look at to your point about you look at the single family housing model and you know uh, the Blackstone model being the invitation homes and so forth. I mean, they were just buying up tons and tons of homes throwing them together in massive portfolios. And that worked as a strategy. But I think the, the one thing that was missing and where when we would ever look at a portfolio of single family homes was the, the one, the, you know, when you look about it, like one, like 
every different house is like different in that portfolio. It has different fixtures. It's got different ACs. I mean, everything about it is relatively unique. And if you think about trying to systematize a portfolio of hundreds or perhaps thousands of those homes, it gets really challenging. And they're they're spread around a metro. So it's it's even operationally challenging. So there was these elements of the single family just rental aggregation play that you would wonder, you're like, can you really end up managing those efficiently? And when you look at that product, you're you're the there are really no amenities. Whatever amenities you're gonna have are just the amenities of that home. Like, what does it have? Does it have a pool in the backyard? Well, I guess that's amenity, but it's a one-off pool that's like really expensive to maintain. Whereas now you take that strategy and you think about the best of what single family housing has to offer. And that is it has a garage. So it has storage. It has your own space, your own backyard. Like you, you have a little bit of a pri- sense of privacy. And then if you can take that and put it into a purpose-built community where it's now new, it's all, everything alike is around you as a like. So you've now massed all of that single ho- family housing together in one location so you can manage it. You can have, you know, uniformity around the community in terms of the fit and finish of the product. And then the kicker is you can amenitize it, right? You can put the clubhouse in and the pool and the dog park and the things that are going to be attractive to the people that want to come live there. And then to me, the final thing, which just pushed it straight over was the demographic trends behind it. You know, knowing that this was going to play into number one, millennials, and number two, empty nesters. And if you think about the average millennial these days, they're now 30 years old. They have, you know, they're now oftentimes in, they have partners, they have pets, they, they, they want some space around them. You know, they might even be starting to have children like these are, you know, but at the same time, what's different about the millennial generation than previous generations is the fact that they have a lot of student debt. And so they're not as well capitalized as maybe previous generations were. At the same time, real estate is more expensive relative to incomes than previous generations saw. And so they're just less able to, you know, and, and then the, and then finally you layer on the fact that it, it's a little harder to get a mortgage today than it was, you know, a decade ago. And that you you put that all together and it's saying, look, there's a really good thesis around why a purpose-built single family residential community with good amenities in an urban suburban location is attractive to those people that that are coming out of the urban core and wanting to trade, you know, get out of their balcony and, you know, corridor, inner corridor served, you know, building that they have to go up and down an elevator to get to their own space. And they're willing to move out of the the urban core to get, get there. And then obviously with COVID, it's like, that's just not, you know, the urban core is not the greatest living experience right now. So it's just pouring some, I think, fuel on that fire. So which is why like we love that space. It's we love it from the ground up perspective. We're gonna do more of it in Texas. We're getting trying to get access to where we can. I think the final point here is that I just recently spoke to an in industry professional, someone who's been in the institutional space for over 20 years. His take was this is the single best strategy he's seen in his career. Hand yeah. down. I listened to, uh, in fact, it might've been one of those Walker webinars. It was actually, uh, Willie had, um, Ivy Zellman on and he asked her like, Hey, if you had $10 million to put to work, where would you do it? And she said, uh, build the rent. So 
yeah. it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, look, a, a bit back, we'll sort of pivot here towards uh, more the personal side. And I appreciate all the, the knowledge that you're sharing here. Um, you mentioned you have a, a deal team of about 12 people. Um, I have shared with numerous people on this podcast that years ago, uh, I was at MIT listening to what I would lovingly call a propeller head who was in the you know, sort of wearables electronic space. And someone asked him, well, are you afraid of competing technologies? And immediately he replied, I'm not afraid of any technology. I'm afraid of teams. Um, and since then, I've, I've, I've really come to think that, you know, certainly execution is important, but the people on the court matter. I, I just wonder what your view of teams might be, and, and in particular, that team of 12 that you are running with every day. Yeah. Well, I can just speaking for our, our team, I mean, w- the work that we do, having having that team in place and having that team function at a high level it is absolutely paramount to, to, to conducting our business. And within our team, so the investments team at CrowdStreet, and then within that, you think about the people that are working day in, day out on deal flow. You know, I, I don't, I mean, there's, it's, it's hugely important for us to spend the right amount of time and focusing on understanding who are the developers and operators across the country that are approaching us or us approaching them. You know, what are they really good at? Where are they really good at doing it? How do they approach their deal flow? Is that in alignment with how we look at deal flow? And oftentimes the answer is it's not. And that that leads to the scenarios where we don't get to agreement on doing a deal. Uh, you know, there's it's, it boils down to the, the quality of the product on the platform. You know, the way we look at it is, look, if the deals aren't good at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Uh, returns won't be there and there's nothing to talk about. So, you know, marketplaces only function if the product is good and then you can assemble on that on one side of the marketplace. And then, so we call that the supply side. And then on the demand side, you can go assemble the, you know, the people that want to come to essentially buy or invest in the product on the marketplace. So, you know, so we are, you know, the the demand side is other teams at CrowdStreet are responsible for kind of assembling the demand, but you know our team in conjunction. So these the two teams at CrowdStreet, one being the capital markets team, and then two being the investments team. I mean, we're we're charged with going out and making sure that the quality of the product going onto the platform is is the best, uh, and so it it takes that team. So I would say. To the to to maybe the counter the position of the person you know you saw at MIT is that okay we couldn't do our jobs without a great team. Building that team also within commercial real estate, it takes time. Commercial real estate is very, I think, experience intensive. There's only so much you can learn by studying it. There is so much more you can learn by doing it. And so the the reps are so important when it comes to, you know, at least the functioning of our team, which is why we see that the performance of our team continues to gain traction every quarter, every year. We're a high velocity platform for commercial real estate. You know, as you mentioned, we've done 460 plus deals. That's a lot of deals in, in the commercial real estate world. You know, some operators and developers, they do four or five deals a year. You know, we do four or five deals within a week 
sometime, right? right? So, right. so right. what that does is it, that basically just changes the velocity and just takes it up to warp speed. And so the more looks we can get, the more data points we can get on markets out there, the the better prepared we are to make, you know, I think astute decisions. And so it's it's just nothing. And then and then I think the final thing that I want to weave in is that you have to have alignment in term within the team in terms of how you see the world, how what are we really doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, so it, it's challenging to to build that right team. And when the right person comes along, they are gold, right? You can't overemphasize the importance of the addition of the next right team member. So, you know, it's not surprising that it has just taken, you know, we're now over six years old as a marketplace. It's taken that six years to just incrementally build that team that is now functioning really well. And in the next three years, it will function better than it does today. And it's an ongoing journey. So there's there's no end point for the, for the performance of the team, right? I mean, that's the part of the beauty of real estate too, is that we'll, we'll only continue to get better. Yeah. And, and so that's obviously the internal uh, relationships. You know, at, I agree with your statement. Um, you know, the only way to get real estate, as evidenced by whatever intern you and I have both worked with, who is incredibly intelligent and went to a very good school, and you you start talking to him and you're like, wow, like, you don't know anything. And it's not that there's anything wrong with them. They just don't have any domain expertise or, or experience, but that's, that's the, the team internally. Uh, I see the relationships externally as pretty much the conduit through which all things flow. Um, the kind of relationship that you and I have, and I'm sure you have with 150 and probably more other, uh, you know, experts in the marketplace. I wonder What's your view of of relationships in particular as it pertains to the commercial real estate space? Yeah, well, you and I both know that the commercial real estate industry, it's a relationship industry. You know, I, I would always say over the years when I'd meet an investor at a conference or something like that, one of our investor events, say, you know, in the commercial real estate private equity world, there's really only one degree of separation, right? We all kind of know, the, the person we know knows the per, somebody else in the industry. And, and that's really as far as you need to get to get to understanding people. So within that kind of space, it we are all interconnected to to a degree. We all belong to, you know, we have this, I think this Venn diagram of intersecting, you know, organizations we belong to. I mean, ULI being one of the largest. And so, you know, I'm an active member there. And so over time, getting to know the the people across the country who you you come to acknowledge are not only experienced, but really good at what they do, high, you know, and reputable, and just you can you can trust. Having that level of trust, leaning on those people, having you know, and also knowing that real estate is a very local, you know, phenomenon in terms of a, of a product type, and so you know, being able to get to somebody who knows that block, who knows the players involved behind the scenes on that deal, can tell you things that you wouldn't possibly be able to understand unless you knew the people who knew the people who were actually behind that deal. You know, there's so much insider information that goes on. I mean, that's another thing I talk about too sometimes with investors is that 
you know, in commercial real estate, there is no such thing as illegal inside information, right? This is just what we call imperfect information. So getting a, an assemblage of, of relationships out there that give you so many eyes and ears on the street of every corner is super paramount to, to being able to navigate it at a national level. And so, you know, for example, we've now at the point we have this luxury of, we have like 20, 220, I should say, you know, active sponsor developer relationships. And then you layer onto that, you know, hundreds more industry relationships. So that just gives you a lot of data points. And again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, it just takes time to get there, uh, to be able to, you know, make good investing decisions in, in real estate. You, you got to assemble all of the above good team, you know, good knowledge, good relationships uh, to, to know what to do and not do. It's, it just, you know, it, it all weaves together. Skills and expertise both, right? Yeah. Um, daily routines for me, um, it's my nature is to be, you know, fairly ADD. I think that's how I was planted on planet earth. So I try to start my days with a whole array of, uh, you know, sort of systems, checklists, even meditations to try to get the target clear in my mind and, and focus the day. I figure if I can focus the day, then maybe I focus the week, the month, the year, and, and I can uh, head head to the, the goal in mind and keep that goal in mind. Um, for you, are, are there any daily routines that uh, you you sort of embody and, and, and do so for the, the hope of you know, being a better practitioner, a better entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think for starters, the way I think about the, if I'm looking at an individual day, I am a subscriber to the theory that I think, you know, there's some data out there that says, Hey, effective people, they tend to have a lot of regularity and kind of systemization in terms of their day in the early or middle part of it. And that it's at the end of the day that they, you put in the variability. And so what that translates to me to is one, you know, my, my morning routine is pretty consistent in terms of, you know, I try to like exercise a little bit and during the COVID time, I mean, I used to row crew in college, so I've got an erg machine in my basement I go use that. Then I'm, I'm very, very systematic in terms of my, my breakfast regimen. I usually make a smoothie it kind of varies. It's either a green smoothie or a berry smoothie. And I make a nice coffee and, you know, that gets me kind of some basic nutrition to start the day. And then it's, you know, then it's logging in and it's reading things that are going on. It's obviously just doing the first parts of the day of kind of checking, you know, some Slack messages and email, try to start intaking some information. And then pretty soon after that, you know, the meetings are going to start. And a lot of my day can be, you know, occupied by meetings. And then towards the end of the day, you know, that's when you, you want to like throw something different in there, whether that's visiting a friend or, you know, going to dinner or whatever. I mean, this is also a little bit pre-pandemic in terms of, you know, COVID times kind of stuff, you know, and then, and then at the end of the day, it's using some quiet time to reflect and then, you know, do a little bit more catch up on email and, you know, do a little bit of content at that time you know, that's your, that's your window of time. I find that you, you can, you can think, do some quiet work, try to kind of like wind down there in the day. And then the, the last thing is, you know, try to then for me in, in particularly, I mean, I'm, oh, let's put it this way. I'm very envious of the people out there in the world who say that they can get by on four or five, six hours of sleep per day 
and those those people have that insatiable you know kind of high level of energy i'm more of the i gotta sleep and so you know come 10 o'clock like i need to rest i need to my i need to give my brain a break i'm winding down the day by reading a book on my kindle every night i'm, I'm a I, I avid reader i like i love nonfiction, so i'm usually reading some sort of nonfiction book, whether it's about business or it's a bio, you know, it's an autobiography, a biography, whatever it is, it's usually more nonfiction than fiction. Um, and that's kind of how I, I end my day. And then, you know, it's, it's rinse and repeat. I love it. And look, as I said at the beginning, uh, for those who don't know the journey that CrowdStreet has taken to get here, uh, I mean, I, I really, I think I would knew you guys like literally like the very beginning and, you and it's been yeah, it's been it's been wonderful, honestly, to watch what has happened, and I th I think you really, really have bright days ahead. Um, for, for the entrepreneurs out there, be they beginning, mid, or or late, uh, you know, sort of in their career, um, and and employing the the notion that we all can learn something from each other. It's not necessarily the case that only the elders can teach, uh, you know, the younger people, but any like i'll just say you know the quote-unquote words of wisdom or encouragement or thoughts uh to the entrepreneurs who are you know i mean look you've you've lived it you've gone through the as they say darkest before the dawn and i think you guys have have persevered and made it to the top of the mountain but any any thoughts you want to share sure i i think there's a lot of stuff that i i think about when i look back on you know the years and the journey that we've been on and and we have a journey that has many years ahead of it uh in terms of like how you get there well for starters you know, I think one thing that was beneficial to to the you know to the early days of CrowdStreet, and we continue to try to augment as we go forward, is a diverse skill set. Uh, I mean, it was literally I think part of the catalyst of what made me want to come join CrowdStreet is that you know when I was approached to kind of serve as the chief investment officer here, knowing that that required a skill set of me, but then knowing I was going to join a group that was about to go try to create and build, you know an online commercial real estate investment platform. And if you think about all the things that have to go into that, well, then what I did is I surveyed, you know, who are the key stakeholders at the table, right? Who are the co-founders and who is the other key exec that was just recruited before me to join? And when I looked at the other, at that time, the other three individuals, we have a larger team now and it's it's bigger, it's, it's broader, it's stronger. But at least at the time, those three original people plus me making the fourth, we, we had hugely diverse skill sets. We, we had enough in common. We were both, we were all similar ages. We were, so we, that put us in the same relative spot in terms of our lifetime and what was important to us day to day. And we had families and kids and things like that. But when we looked at our skill sets, I was like, wow, like I, I can't imagine three other people right now that could come together that would have, you know, we, we got the four corners going. And if we could do that, and if I'm being asked to do my part, but I know that what I'm good at is really different than what Steve Drew and our team is good at or Torstine or Darren Powderly. And they're amazing at what they do. And I can trust that they're going to go crush their area while I, I, I'm being asked to go, go crush mine. That's going to give us a good chance of success. And so I think whenever, would I put it this way, if I was ever looking at another type of opportunity or could talk to somebody who was looking at opportunity, I would say, what do you want to do? What, what are the skills that are going to be necessary to get it done? And do you have all of those skills present? And you don't have to have all of them present, but but I can tell you that what I think would be less optimized for success is you with a certain skill set paired up with three other four other people's 
with the people with the same skill sets and think that you're going to go do something that needs a diverse skill set, right? Some, sometimes that happens. That's easy to gravitate towards because, you know, those people, they're more like you, you find, you find them, maybe they're already your friends, colleagues or whatever. You know, I think I just can tell you from our experience, having that diversity at the table was really paramount, you know, early on. I think the other thing too, what really benefited us, and I think for very much from the entrepreneur standpoint, if you're going to go embark on a venture and go create and build something, we had what I, what we believed at the time and proved to be true, just fundamental underlying demand for the space that was, it was raw and new, but it was sustainable and it was growing. And I, I think there's enough risk. There's so much risk in creating something new as it is. That I feel like if I was, if you're going to do it, you got to look at the space and honestly size it up and say, is there just fundamental underlying demand that's only getting bigger in this space? Because there's so many other ways to get it wrong. But at least if you've got that, you have the ability to navigate and then potentially win. And that, so I think that was another one. And I think the third is just kind of the typical, like, don't be afraid just to get knocked down. There's so many different ways that we were knocked down. And you just got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and move ahead. And if you, if you took too long to, to kind of stop and, and, you know, embrace and, and kind of go down the, the rabbit hole of self-pity, markets move fast when you're, when you're young and you're an entrepreneur, like you just don't have that luxury. You just got to get up, get back in the saddle and keep going. Um, and ultimately it's the tenacity of the team and that ability to get back and keep going which will attract other people to your to your venture, to your company, whatever it is, to then join you on that journey because they know that they can count on you to to take a hit, but just get up and keep going again. And so I think that's that's the other thing that I think really helped us along the way. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, it, there's the last two there. I think it's Mark Andreessen that um, I can't remember the quote exactly, but something about you know, markets bail out marginal entrepreneurs all the time, and they're more inclined to bet on a market than a particular entrepreneur and his strategy, right? Get the market right, the rest of it will sort itself out. Um, and, then, and then the other thing on tenacity, I've, I've heard it said that um, if you were to look at like the top of a mountain uh, from above, you can see that there's lots of different ways to get to the top of the mountain. But when you're at the bottom your mention of tenacity. I mean, look, you're going to go into a box Canyon. You've never been up that mountain. You don't know how it's put together. Okay. Turn around, go back another way, find your way up. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's the people who have conviction that they will prevail that inevitably do. So that's, it's great. And congrats to you guys. I mean, you're, you're, you're literally embodying, uh, those sorts of notions. So it's great stuff. Well, thanks. We got a long way to go, but at least it's been, you know, a heck of a journey since it, since twenty. It's a hell of a start. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Ian, I, I've probably taken far too much of your uh, afternoon, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and, you know, putting it out there for everybody else to hear. No, um, absolutely. Enjoy the weekend and yeah. best of luck to you guys. Well, thanks. And, you know, best of luck to you as you build the podcast. And, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, Kevin. So look forward to, you know, what, you, what you're doing on multiple fronts. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Ian. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Take care.